If you'd keep your Bibles open in that portion that we looked at a little bit earlier, uh, Luke, Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, and we're going to uh, be considering these events around the cross from that, from that Gospel account. Now, we live in a very visual age, I'm sure you would agree with that, an age of television and movies and YouTube, an age of multimedia presentations and immersive virtual reality games and things like that. And so in the light of this, you may have heard people speak about God and the Bible and say things like, surely you can't expect modern people, especially the younger generation, to understand all the stuff that is written in a book. Well, I'd like to partially agree with with those people who, who say these things. We do certainly live in a very visual age, but guess what? So has every age since the beginning of creation been a visual age. The, the whole Bible is a, a, re, a recollection of how man is a creature of the visual. Think about it. Satan tempted Eve with the visual. The Israelites made an idol of a golden calf because they wanted something visual to worship. David fell into adultery and murder because of visual temptation. So, although, yes, God has forbidden that we may not make any visual representation of Him in order to bow down and worship Him, nevertheless, God, in His grace, gave to His people many visual things in order to reveal Himself to them and in order to reveal His way of salvation to them. And so as we go right back to the, the tabernacle with all its intricate construction details, uh, the interior decorating, the, the furniture, and then we look at the, the sacrifices and the rituals, and, and later on in the temple in Jerusalem, we find that, that all of these things were meant to be dramatic visual aids to point God's people forward to the, the greatest of all dramas which would unfold on that first Easter morning 2,000 years ago. And so I want us to focus this Good Friday on the greatest of all dramas as it played out in the history of humanity. The, the stage is, is Calvary. It's a small hill outside the city walls of Jerusalem. It's a place of death. This was a, a place that was an abomination to the Jews. And as we consider in our mind's eye the events of this great drama, I want us this morning to focus on Act 1. Act 1, which is playing itself out in three scenes around the cross of Jesus. And like most gripping dramas, uh, each scene revolves around a key dialogue. It's our case, it's between Jesus and, and various characters in this great exhibition of God's unfolding plan of salvation. Now, I don't know about you, but there's nothing more frustrating for me than when I've watched a, a two-hour-long detective or crime or suspense kind of movie to suddenly find the credits are rolling by and I realize that I just didn't get the plot. I missed the crucial links between the clues that were dropped along the way and certain pieces of evidence and various characters who were not who you thought they were, and you are left confused and frustrated. Well, this morning it's absolutely vital that we get the plot of this drama. 
We do not come to the end of the life of Jesus feeling confused and frustrated because if we don't get this plot, it, it won't simply be that you've wasted a few hours in front of the television or wasted an hour on a Friday morning. You would have wasted your whole life because your eternity depends on you getting this. And so Luke's account of the events of the crucifixion of Jesus are meant to reveal to us the plot. The, the plot or the storyline, not just of his gospel, but of the whole Bible. Namely, who Jesus is, why he came to earth, and how he, by dying on a cross, accomplished the purposes of God. Now, you may be aware that Jesus said seven things while he was on the cross. Three are recorded here for us in, in Luke's gospel and the other four in the other gospels. But we're going to focus on the three which Luke gives to us in this passage that we read together in order to reveal this plot line of his gospel and the plot line of the Bible that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan to bring salvation to a lost world and to reverse the curse that has been caused by sin. So let's start with scene one. Uh, scene one, who is Jesus? And the first scene around the cross starts with Jesus speaking in verse 34. As they nailed him to the cross and then hoisted the cross into position between the two criminals on either side of him, we find Jesus saying these words, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. So here's the first clue in the plot line, the first part of the answer to the question of the identity of Jesus Christ. We see here that he is the Son of God. We see that Jesus calls out to God as his Father. Now, we are quite familiar on this side of the cross calling God Father, but to the Jewish context of the day, this was unheard of. And so here Jesus calls out to God as his Father. In this moment of greatest human suffering, as in all of his life, he maintains intimate fellowship with his Father. The second person of the triune God, being sustained by the Holy Spirit, is in fellowship with God the Father. But we also see something of who Jesus is by what he prayed. I mean, think about it. What kind of person after perfectly fulfilling all of God's requirements necessary to purchase salvation, then asks God to forgive those who are unjustly crucifying him and putting him to death. And here we see that Jesus truly is the lover of our souls. Only God in the flesh could say those words because of a divine love and compassion for his enemies. For in their spiritual blindness, they had no idea what they were actually doing. Yes, on a human level, they understood in a, in a physical sense what they were doing. But they had no idea at all of the magnitude of their sin. They were crucifying the very Son of God. The one who spoke the world into existence. The one who created the very mound of rock on which they were standing. The one who created the tree to which he had just been nailed. The one who created and given life to every one of those people standing around him, mocking and spitting at him and striking him. They had no idea who he was. And so Jesus prays for God to forgive them. 
Now, the rest of the answers as to this identity, who is Jesus, comes in the form of immense irony from those who are mockers and scoffers standing around the cross who spoke better than they knew. Firstly, look at verse 35. We have the Jewish people, both the common man and the religious rulers. We read, And the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Their blind and rebellious hearts are actually shouting out the truth about Jesus. They did not know what they were saying. Because Jesus had saved others. They had been witnesses of this. Jesus was the Christ, that is, the the Messiah, the chosen one of God. He was this long-awaited Old Testament Messiah. And he came to do exactly what the Old Testament, as we've seen in Isaiah 53, had prophesied. He came to save sinners. The very things that they thought would mock him was actually a declaration of the truth. And here's the amazing irony of their mocking statements. Jesus was doing exactly what he needed to do to make that salvation that they spoke about possible. In not saving himself and coming down off the cross, he was actually accomplishing the salvation of sinners. The next group who reveals something of Jesus' identity are the Roman soldiers. These were Gentiles. These these people knew nothing of the rich Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. And yet, in their ignorance, they also proclaim the truth about Jesus. In verse 36, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. These Words, together with the inscription that Pilate had had written above Jesus on the cross, perhaps in jest, was nevertheless the truth. Jesus is the king of the Jews. Not the Jews in a, a kind of nationalistic or political sense, but here we have King David's greatest son. He was the one whom God promised would reign on David's throne for all eternity. And again, in irony, they they mock him. They mock him to save himself, not realizing that because he was the king, that he was fully in control of the situation. Jesus was not the victim here. We need to get that right. Jesus was not the victim here. He was the king who was reigning and ruling while being crucified. He willingly gave up his life unto death to accomplish his purposes. And then the final group who reveal the identity of Jesus at this scene one around the cross are the two thieves, these two criminals. I think the best modern translation in our understanding would be terrorists. These two guys were terrorists. At least initially, they, it seems from some of the other gospel accounts that they were both involved in cursing and reviling Jesus. And in verse 39, Luke records the specific words of one of these criminals at this point. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now, these criminals were most likely Jewish, uh, but they were definitely not the religious type. These were not your average 
uh, Jewish synagogue attendees. These were hardened criminals who probably just knew enough about the Old Testament to be dangerous. And so one of them shouts out in ignorance, if you are the Christ, if you are the Messiah, save yourself, and while you're at it, save us too. Again, what, what irony. The very words that were spoken in, in a kind of selfish mockery on the part of that one criminal was about to become a reality for the other. But let's not get ahead of ourselves, that scene too. So, so there we have the first scene around the cross. The who is Jesus dialogue in which Luke is trying to make it very clear about the identity of Jesus. He is the promised Messiah. He is the King of the Jews. He is the Son of God. And He is the lover of our souls. You got, you got the plot line of scene one. Then you're ready to move on to scene two. So let's move to the second scene around the cross. Uh, and, and scene two takes a dramatic turn of events. Who could have guessed the twist in the tale that would take place at Calvary? For in this next scene, Luke now makes it clear why Jesus came to earth. So scene two, why did Jesus come? And we must not miss this major significance of what happens here in verse 40. Please look at verse 40. Remember that the whole world in one sense has turned against Jesus here on the cross. His whole trial was an absolute sham. Jesus had been mocked and beaten. He had been handed over to two corrupt Roman officials, governors. They falsely accused him. He was sentenced to death and now finally crucified. And surrounding the cross were, were his crucifiers. All the religious leaders, all the people who had plotted his death, they were delighting in a kind of sadistic way in watching Jesus die. All of them shouting out curses and, and abuses and adding insult to injury. We are told by scholars that crucifixion was not necessarily the most painful way to die, but it was intended to be the most shameful. It, of course, was very slow and extremely painful, but it was a death which was meant to be a very public display for all who passed by to heap their insults onto the dying man. It's in the midst of all of this that we have the miraculous conversion of the other thief. Look at verse 40. But the other thief rebuked the first one, saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. This is the first sincere statement spoken to Jesus on the cross. And it's the only statement to which Jesus responds. Jesus has not responded once to all the mockery and the insults that have been thrown at him. He simply let the, the irony of the truth of these statements remain unchallenged. But when this wicked, hardened terrorist speaks to Jesus in sincerity, in faith, we see that Jesus responds. You were meant to hear that. <laughs> what a comfort to us today. 
What a comfort to know that no matter how sinful a life we have lived, no matter how many times we've rejected Jesus, and perhaps you may even be someone who, looking back on your life, you've mocked him, you've blasphemed him. When we call out the name of Jesus in faith, he always responds in grace and mercy. Jesus said to him in verse 43, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This incredible turn of events gives us the answer as to why Jesus came. He came to save sinners. Saving sinners was Jesus' mission. Saving sinners is always an incredible turn of events because it's a miraculous work of God which goes against everything in the heart of a sinner. Here in scene two, in just a few verses, we have the entire account of the salvation of one man. This man, on the cross next to Jesus, had gone from someone who'd lived a life of crime and violence, someone who publicly reviled the way of salvation, who had actually, a bit earlier in the day, blasphemed the Son of God to his face. He had gone from that to someone who now saw the truth about Jesus and why he came to earth. In those few hours on the cross, he came to understand his own sinfulness and the reality that he deserved what he was getting. He came to see his desperate need for salvation and ultimately he became a man who confessed his faith in Jesus Christ and then committed the remainder of his life and all of his eternity into the saving hands of the King of Kings. How is that possible, you may ask? He didn't go to church. He never read a Bible. He never prayed the sinner's prayer, walked to the front, or got baptized. He couldn't take up church membership. He couldn't become a Sunday school teacher. He had nothing to bring from his past and he had nothing left of his future to offer. He seems to me to just be a desperate man who saw Jesus to be the only hope that he had left. Exactly. Exactly. That is the Bible's message of salvation. In fact, any message of salvation, any so-called gospel which proposes anything else is no gospel at all. Every single person who is genuinely saved by Jesus Christ has had to follow the exact same route as that terrorist. Do you see yourself in that man this morning? Can you identify in your conversion, your coming to faith in Jesus Christ, the elements of that man's situation? There may be some of you here today who think that you are a Christian, you were raised in a, in a Catholic or a Dutch Reformed or a Baptist home. You were perhaps baptized as a baby, and then you were confirmed as a teenager. You might have even gone to the front at a youth camp and given your heart to Jesus, whatever that means. You may have even been baptized or re-baptized as a, as a believer. But you sit here today, and if you are honest with yourself, you know nothing of the attitude of this thief on the cross. You may have been to the cross, but when you came to the cross, you brought with you all your credentials. 
You brought with you all your righteous deeds of the past and all your promises to Jesus of the things you would do for him in the future. You know nothing of the desperation of being justly deserving of having your hands and your feet nailed to a cross with no hope of ever saving yourself. Well, if that is you this morning, then please listen very carefully to the words of A.W. Pink. He says, before any sinner can be saved, he must come to the place of realized weakness. That is what the conversion of the dying thief shows us. What could he do? He could not walk in the paths of righteousness, for there was a nail through each foot. He could not perform any good works, for there was a nail through each hand. He could not even turn over a new leaf and live a better life because he was about to die. And my reader, those hands of yours which are so ready for self-righteous acting and those feet of yours which are so swift to run in the way of legal obedience, they must be nailed to the cross. The sinner has to be cut off from his own workings and be made willing to be saved by Christ. A realization of your sinful condition, of your lost condition, of your helpless condition is the sole prerequisite for coming to Christ for salvation. For Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Well, that brings us to the end of scene two. And now we turn our attention to the third and final scene around the cross. Uh, This one is recorded by Luke to explain to us how Jesus achieved the salvation of sinners. This final piece of the puzzle on which the entire plot line of the Bible hangs is found in scene three. How did Jesus, dying on a cross, achieve the purposes of God? Now let's just... To get the context here, recap the timeline of the crucifixion. Jesus had already at this point been on the cross for three hours, suffering the worst physical and mental and emotional affliction that the devil and his, his servants could possibly muster. But the true reality of the cross had not actually yet begun. It begins in verse 44. For three hours... God turned the full face of his wrath and judgment for the vileness and the guilt of man's sin upon Jesus. And the immensity of this can never, ever be understood by us. Please don't think that you can actually grasp what took place in those three hours. But as much as we can never fully understand it, may we never, ever underestimate it. Just consider the physical manifestation of the spiritual reality that was taking place. We are told that the whole earth was plunged into darkness because the sun stopped shining. Have you thought about that? Please don't ever think that this was just a coincidental solar eclipse. The Jewish Passover is held at the time of the full moon, so an eclipse is impossible. But even so, the longest eclipse possible in 8,000 years of solar calculations, dating back from 3,000 BC to 5,000 AD, the longest possible solar eclipse is 7 minutes and 29 seconds. And yet for three hours, there was darkness over the entire earth because the sun stopped shining. The justice of a holy God was being poured out on his righteous son on the cross. This was of cosmic proportions. 
for three hours the greatest sign of God's common grace to us as mankind, namely the Son, was blotted out as God poured out his wrath upon Jesus. Please don't ever think that what happened on the cross was simply the the physical and emotional suffering of Jesus, as many modern movies have tried to portray. That was very real, not underestimating that. But the true reality of how Jesus' death on the cross could bring about the salvation of sinners is what took place during those three hours of God's wrath and God's justice being satisfied. For the first and only time in all eternity past and all eternity future, we see the second person of the triune Godhead out of fellowship with his Father and the Spirit. During those three hours, we have no dialogue. It was as if the world stood still while God brought about the climax of human salvation. The perfect, righteous Lamb of God who took on humanity in order that he might die in our place. He bore upon himself in those three hours the full penalty, the full punishment of your sins and mine. The infinite God-man bearing the infinite wrath of an infinitely holy God. And at the end of this time, after Jesus had drunk the very last drop of the wrath of God against sin, as as our song item uh, mentioned a little bit earlier, Luke tells us something of profound importance. He says the veil of the temple was torn in two. Now, if this had not been done by God, it would have been the most serious disaster in all of Jewish history. You see, the whole temple system, the system of courts and walls and rooms within rooms, were meant to be a visual picture to the people of God that sinful people need to be separated from a holy God. The presence of God was symbolically contained within the holy of holies and was kept as far away from sinful people as possible. Access to God was controlled by a series of prescribed washings and and sacrifices and rituals and, and priestly mediation. All of these things were pointing forward to Jesus. We know that no one could go into the presence of God, for if they did, they would have been struck down dead. So when we think about the presence of God being released from the Holy of Holies, The Jewish mind would have seen that like a nuclear bomb that ran across their land, wiping everyone out in its path. The final barrier to this presence of God was this thick curtain, 20 meters high, 10 meters wide, and 10 centimeters thick. It weighed about four tons, and it needed 300 men to carry it into the temple. But after three hours of darkness, Luke tells us the most incredible fact. This curtain, this final barrier between sinful men and a holy God, it was ripped in two. And just in case you were wondering how that happened, Matthew and Mark tell us this 20-meter high curtain was ripped from top to bottom. All of the shadows that had pointed to Jesus Christ, were no longer necessary. God ripped the curtain away. All the barriers of access into the presence of God were gone because Jesus Christ now becomes our access. 
That's exactly what Hebrews 10 tells us. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have, listen to this, confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great high priest, the same Jesus, over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Now I understand why that Jewish girl who was converted said her entire studying of the Old Testament for all those years left her feeling that God was remote and distant because he was locked up in a temple behind a curtain. But in Christ, that curtain, that barrier was ripped. We have access into the very presence of God. And so this scene three ends with a monologue. Jesus, verse 46, calls out with a loud voice and says, Father, Into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Many great preachers have preached an entire sermon on on this last statement, but with this I'll conclude. These are words of final accomplishment. Not simply just the completion of something which Jesus needed to endure, but these are the words of accomplishment. John tells us that just before Jesus said these words, he cried out what? It is finished. It's finished. Jesus had done the will of his Father. His work of salvation was finished. The only work left to be done was to overcome death itself. Jesus paid the price. He bore the punishment of God for the salvation of his children. It's finished. And so he commits his spirit into the hand of his loving Father, and he dies. Thank God for Act 1. But the drama is is only halfway. There is a second act. But you're going to have to come back on Sunday for act two in this great drama. You must not miss the second act because the second act, the, the first act ends in the death of the Savior. Yes, he's paid the price for our salvation. But but this salvation that you and I enjoy is bound up not only in his death, but in his conquering death. Price has been paid, God's justice has been satisfied, but the victory has not yet been won. So we all, like those early followers of Jesus, we need to wait for a few days. We need to wait until Sunday morning for Act 2. And I want to pray that, that you would wait for Sunday with anticipation. Don't just assume you know it all, because we do know it all. But that we would wait to see the resurrection of Jesus. But before we leave here today, we need to ask ourselves the vital question. As the credits are rolling by, you can always tell when a pastor's kind of toning down towards the end. As the credits are rolling by, the question is, do you get it? Do you get it? You see, there's only one of two responses to this drama which God so graciously revealed to us on the stage of history. And we see the two responses in verse 47 and 48. The centurion, this is a Roman, uh, a, a, a Roman soldier, a general over a rough man, a hard man. Look at what he says. The centurion, seeing what had happened, what did he do? He praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. Verse 48, when all the people who had gathered to witness the sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. The events of the cross 
either lead you to praise God as someone who is transformed by the love and the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ, or it results in you leaving today, perhaps beating your chest in sympathy or confusion or maybe even disdain, but walking away to return to your life of rejection of the way of salvation offered to you at the cross. So either you are drawn as the one thief to see his sinfulness and his helplessness before God and you cry out to Jesus for salvation or you leave like the other thief, dying as he heaped insults upon Jesus. There's no other alternative. If the cross teaches us anything, it's that God will not overlook your sin. God would not have punished Jesus if there was another way to overcome your sin. Jesus would not have had to die if there was another way. God will not overlook any sin that is not covered by the blood of Jesus. It's either your death and punishment for all eternity, or it's Jesus in your place. So for those of you this morning who like that thief, who know what it is to come to Jesus with your hands and your feet nailed to the cross, helpless, dying in your sin, Well, then you can leave here today knowing that regarding your salvation, regarding the forgiveness of your sins, regarding your reconciliation with your Creator, and regarding your eternity in heaven, it is finished. Jesus has paid it all. I pray that that is true of every single one of us here this morning. Let's come to the Lord in prayer. Father, we marvel at the events that unfold, unfolded on that hill of Calvary 2,000 years ago. If we simply looked at those events from a purely historical perspective, we would, we would have to say, as that centurion did, surely this was a righteous man. But with all the, the knowledge of your revelation revealed to us in the pages of the scriptures, the Old Testament prophecies, the, the record of, of the law and our need to be saved, we can come to that hill and we can cry out, Jesus, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. You are the Messiah of God. You are the chosen one. You are the savior of our souls. And so we cry out to you today, perhaps some here today for the very first time, that you would forgive us for our wretchedness, for our sinfulness, that we would stop trying to bring things to offer you to make us acceptable to you, that we would just cry out to you in our desperation to save us. And for those who have done that, both today or, or previously, we pray that we would leave here today with a great sense of anticipation for Sunday morning, We come to consider what your resurrection accomplished for us, not just on that moment in history, but for us for every day of our lives on this earth and for all eternity. And so we pray that we would be those who are so filled with joy that we cannot help but tell others of this good news, of this person of Jesus Christ, and of the way of salvation that he came to make available to us. Help us, we pray, to grasp these things today in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close the service this morning with our final hymn, uh, which really just calls us to do what I've prayed, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. Let's do that as we close today.